This is a recording for the Kayvon Chinichian Teleconference with the Atlantic Council of the U.S. Monday, July 18, 2016, scheduled for 8 a.m. Central Time. Excuse me, everyone. We now have Mr. Ashish Sen on the line to start the call. Please be aware that each of your lines is now in a listen-only mode. At the conclusion of the briefing, we will open the floor for questions. At that time, instructions will be provided on how to proceed to ask the question. I would now like to turn the call over to Mr. Sen, who will be offering some introductory remarks and facilitate the discussion. Mr. Sen, you may begin. Uh, thank you, and good morning from Washington, and thank you all for joining us on this call. Uh, I'm Ashish Sen, Deputy Director of Editorial at the Atlantic Council. Um, today we'll be discussing developments in Turkey where the government has launched a widespread crackdown following a failed coup over the weekend. Uh, Secretary Kerry this morning has warned that NATO will scrutinize Turkey's actions as a result of its purge. Um, today's call is part of a member's conference call series which provides members from around the world an exclusive opportunity to speak directly with the Atlantic Council. Uh, please note that today's call is being recorded. It's on the record and will be distributed to members unable to show them after. Uh, on our call today, we are joined by Sir Peter Westmacott, Matt Breiser, and Aaron Stein to discuss development in Turkey and the challenges that lie ahead. Uh, Sir Peter is a former ambassador to, of the UK to Turkey. Uh, more recently, he served as UK ambassador to the United States. Uh, Aaron Stein is the Council's Turkey expert. He is a resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Rapid Career Center for the Middle East. And Ambassador Breiser is a non-resident senior fellow with the Council's Dean of the Christian Eurasia Center. He is also a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasia, with responsibilities that included Turkey. Uh, Ambassador Breiser is joining us from Istanbul. Um, our speakers will provide brief analysis of developments in Turkey, after which we shall open up the floor for questions. So, Peter, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. Thanks for including me in this um, discussion of recent events in Turkey. There's a huge amount to say, but there's still obviously a great deal of uncertainty. I think my preliminary comments would be the following. First of all, that I don't think very many people saw this coming. Um, it has become clear as the briefings have been made and people have dug deep into the details of what happened on Friday night and Saturday, that in fact there was uh, a process of preparation and planning which was quite extensive, more extensive than many people recognized, more extensive it seems even than some of the top brass of the Turkish military uh, understood. But nevertheless, it didn't seem to me, but, uh, and I don't think to very many other people, that something like this was about to happen. Um, one of the reasons for that is because <coughs> most of the people that I've spoken to in Turkey, in business, and around the military, and so on, media, have had the impression that the relationship between the senior um, hierarchy of the Turkish general staff, of the Turkish military, and the uh, elected AKP government have been better in recent years, uh, partly because there's a robust response to the PKK terrorism in the southeast, um, partly because the relationship with uh, the prime minister, and now the president, Erdogan, seems to be stronger, and uh, partly, I would say, but I speak subject to correction, that a number of senior people in the military have come to the conclusion that the activities of the Fethullah Gulen movement, or Hizmet movement, in fact threaten uh, Turkey's secularism and Turkey's territorial integrity and the future of government there, 
uh, more than the behavior of the AKP and uh, the Erdogan administration, which itself, of course, has been criticized in recent years by uh, a number of people. So I think it was a bit of a, bit of a surprise, and uh, that was why everyone was rather shocked. I think initially it looked as though it was uh, such a, a poorly organized event, such a botched coup, if you like, that no one really took it seriously. There was even some suggestion that it was so absurd that maybe this was a put-up job in order to give the government and the president an opportunity to crack down on opponents and to uh, outlaw hostile elements. It seems to me that is not very likely. The more we've learned about it, the more we've realized that this was a pretty extensive operation and did not come that, that far from uh, being a success. In any case, to choreograph such uh, an extraordinarily wide-ranging thing with large numbers of soldiers, tanks, airplanes, and everything else, around the country would have been uh, quite a performance, quite a challenge, I think, for anybody, uh, even if you are one of the strongest believers in conspiracy theories. So uh, we are where we are. There is now um, what looks like a pretty tough crackdown going on. I was a little concerned when I saw that thousands of judges were being fired. I didn't know there were thousands of judges in Turkey, but uh, clearly there is a judicial system which does an awful lot of work there. Uh, on what grounds, uh, I do not know, and there have been obviously a lot of military people that have been rounded up, some of whom quite close to the president, which itself is perhaps worrying if people didn't really see this coming. I mean, clearly there needs to be the rooting out of those who were responsible, but I personally think it is important that many Western democratic leaders have warned against uh, an excessive crackdown of too much retribution, uh, and in favor of trying to move on from this event in a way which both, on the one hand, deals with the perpetrators of the coup, but at the same time addresses some of the issues of inclusivity, uh, rule of law, freedom of expression, and so on, which have given cause to some concern to Turkey's friends and indeed many people in Turkey uh, in recent years. So I think one of the big challenges now is not only how you move on from the coup and ensure that this is not going to happen again to threaten Turkey's democratic process, uh, but also that the administration responds in a way which helps the country heal uh, rather than adds to the divisions and the polarization uh, of which the failed coup, I think, I think is to some extent a, a symptom. So I think those are some of the issues. There are obviously question marks now over what happens to Turkey's uh, aspiration to join the European Union. That was already faltering, but I personally would say that I hope very much that even if people in Turkey don't think that uh, immediate joining of the EU is, is anything likely, uh, that meeting the criteria for membership is still something which is in the interest of the Turkish economy, Turkish society, Turkish prosperity um, and uh, security, and that uh, that would remain an objective uh, for the government of the, of the Turkish Republic. But that's obviously going to be up to Turkish government, Turkish people. And in the short term, it looks to me as though one of the consequences, especially with the very large numbers of people who were called out onto the streets and who did actually stand up against the military, many people were losing their lives in the process. This has been a strengthening, it seems, for the time being anyway, of popular support for the president, uh, for the AKP. And I noticed that a number of senior military and other figures, not known supporters of the AKP, have come out and said this is intolerable, this is a threat to the democracy of our republic, uh, and they are firmly opposed to what the plotters were trying to achieve. 
Uh, that actually, that and the condemnation of the coup by the leaders of all the political parties uh, in Turkey, I think is an encouraging sign and should provide a platform for a degree of unity to try to pull together and move forward without placing in jeopardy the very important liberties uh, and the potential for further progress in the economy and society of Turkey, which I think is important for all Turks and for all those of us who care about uh, the future of Turkey. I will stop there. I won't talk about what this means in terms of geostrategic issues and what's happening with neighbors in Iraq and Syria and Daesh. I think others could talk about that. And if people want to discuss it, they can. And I thought it was best to focus on uh, the failed coup itself and the immediate consequences. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Aaron? <clears throat> uh, thank you, and thank you, everybody, for joining the call. Um, obviously, it's been a, a, a very fast-moving set of events in Turkey since this began at about 3 o'clock uh, Washington, D.C. time uh, on Friday uh, uh, here. And I think in the subsequent days after the coup has largely failed is that there's been a little bit of a losing of the plot. Um, and, I, and I think, that, you know, one thing is that this has been sort of cast as a small group of characters that put together a bumbling attempt to overthrow the government. And I think the more and more we learn about it is that the casting characters weren't so small and that the plot may have been bumbling, but there was some serious planning involved which suggests pretty, I wouldn't say wide-scale support, with, with, uh, support for it within the armed forces, but nevertheless a significant minority, as I'm calling it, that were involved in this. And I say that because, as you know, the previous speaker mentioned, this took some planning because it, 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 it marshaled and brought together a number of different services involved uh, in, in the Turkish military to carry out pretty simultaneous operations uh, that nevertheless failed, but that, that, that does show the extent to which it was planned. And I think the most obvious ones were uh, the movement of six F-16s from an airbase uh, just north of, of Ankara, uh, that managed to be refueled in flight from Interlake Air Force Base, which is obviously very critical to the United States uh, because it serves as the hub for the counter-ISIL coalition uh, and for a number of the airstrikes being carried out now uh, against the Islamic State inside Syria. So you had airplanes from one air base being refueled from another uh, and tanks uh, in the streets of Istanbul from a different land base. And then on Saturday, you had a naval base involved. And if you take the subsequent arrests just within the military, uh, beginning on Saturday and continuing up until today, you see widespread and at least a number of high-level people that have been detained, not specifically arrested. There is a slight difference in, 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 the, in the Turkish uh, legal system. They have been detained, perhaps on suspicion of being involved in this. And the latest number I saw this morning, it could have changed, was 103 uh, generals uh, and admirals. Uh, one, two, three, four-star generals. Uh, and I think you know, that obviously speaks to, again, what I was saying earlier, that this is a significant minority within the, within the Turkish Armed Forces uh, that were at least aware of this, or perhaps had a, had a hand in this, or at least had been wrapped up in this, uh, in the subsequent looking for people who were involved by the, by, by, by the Turkish judiciary uh, and authorities. Um, I think what else you saw is that you had a response um, almost immediately uh, after the, the, the President Erdogan Friday uh, from the people themselves, uh, and I think uh, I, I you know that it, I think that in itself deserves more analysis that we can get into in the, in the, in the Q and A if need be. But this is largely, uh, I would say, a widespread popular 
pushed against the coup, but the first people on the streets, I would say, were, were very hardcore supporters of the AKP, uh, and if not AKP supporters, far-right nationalists, and it has since become a more broad-based coalition of people on the streets that are pushing against it. Um, I think the implications of the future, and I'll, I'll start to wrap up here, are actually quite profound. Uh, on the EU side, as was mentioned earlier, there will be a debate, I think, pretty significant debate in Turkey about reinstituting the death penalty, and that obviously goes against the, uh, the assessment process and EU norms, and Germany has said this morning that that would essentially end the, the, uh, the, the assessment process uh, right now if they were to go forward. You have operationally uh, the implications for the, for the U.S.-led war in Syria against the Islamic State. You did have a brief hiccup of, of air operations that have injured it. Those have picked up again as of yesterday. I mean, but nevertheless, you know, two tankers that do appear to have been involved in this coalition have some sort of tangential role in this coup plot. And I think for, uh, you know, for U.S.-Turkey relations more broadly, uh, you are seeing more and more um, Turkish officials from very senior positions in the ruling justice and development party saying that the U.S. essentially has to choose. Does it choose Turkey or does it choose Fethullah Gulen, who they, choose, who they, they accuse of being behind this, because Fethullah Gulen lives in self-imposed exile up in the Poconos in Philadelphia. Now, you have, you've had John Kerry come out and say, I believe yesterday on CBS, on the Sunday shows, that Turkey has yet to formally request his extradition to Turkey and that the U.S. would welcome this and begin the process to review the case itself. Uh, so if Turkey does pursue this and build out all the necessary paperwork and all the bureaucratic mechanisms that needs to be done to, to force the U.S. to begin to make a choice about whether or not it's a legal status for extradition, you could have a crisis in U.S.-Turkey relations. So, I mean, obviously this coup attempt was unexpected. Very few people uh, predicted it, uh, especially, and I'll include myself there. I mean, I, I think as of last week, most people said that the country was had some problems, particularly in the southeast, with the, with the, with the Kurdish-led insurgency, and that there were some problems in governance, but nevertheless, it was relatively stable. I think the lessons learned is that the country is has all of the problems that we were talking about a week ago, but now that veneer of stability has been pulled off, and now we have to question how long Turkey will remain unstable, and then the fallout along those three the brief things that I mentioned, the EU operationally, Syria, Iraq, and ISIS, and then U.S.-Turkish relations more broadly, will be, in, will be affected by that question of stability and how that begins to play out in Turkish domestic policy. Um, thanks, Aaron. Uh, Ambassador Buda? Sure. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, I, I strongly agree with Ambassador Westmacott and what Aaron just said about this uh, not at all seeming like a pre-planned hoax of any sort, but a legitimate, I mean, a, not a legitimate, but a genuine coup attempt. Um, as Aaron was saying, it, it's just far too complicated to, uh, or as Ambassador was saying, to uh, stage these combined arms operations involving this F-16s, a helicopter assault on parliament, uh, ground forces movement with tanks, cutting off the two Istanbul bridges, seizing the Istanbul Atatürk airport. Uh, that, that is way more than I think that the Turkish system could possibly fabricate. And I think that uh, the coup was perilously close to succeeding. Um, the, the, you know, I, the planning was rushed. If you look at the components that were 
uh, assembled into this plan, it seems like they were kind of the right, the right pieces. They just didn't execute them in a coordinated fashion. The right pieces, maybe not that I would condone them, of course, for anyone listening in, but, but if you wanted to succeed. So they had, uh, they were trying to go after President Erdogan physically. Um, the, the military rebels were able to shut off the Turkish national broadcaster, TRT, a state broadcaster. They were going after private broadcaster, the biggest one, CNN Turk. They didn't get there in time. Um, breaches these airports, etc. Um, I, I think that the, the key to this, getting resolved as it was and not succeeding, was President Erdogan's unbelievable you know, FaceTime uh, announcement or appeal to the nation through CNN Turk, which, as, again, as we know, was seized by the rebels only after he made this appeal to the people to get out into the streets. So had he been unable to make that appeal, um, I doubt that there would have been these numbers in the streets, and I think the chances of the military succeeding, uh, or the rebels succeeding, would have been much higher. So it was perilously close. Uh, a second important thing, critical thing that happened was the commander of the first army based here in Istanbul, so the, you know, the main Istanbul military district, came out, I forgot, it was, seemed like it was around 3 in the morning, I was so tired, but anyway, and announced that, uh, that he did not support the coup. And shortly thereafter, the troops pulled back from Ataturk Airport, saw on TV that the bridges reopened, uh, Bosporus Bridges, and I, at that moment knew that, that it was over sort of in a strategic sense. <clears throat> but, of course, it went on, mopping up, operations continued, and now they're continuing uh, with everything we know about these arrests. So the, the one point I'm trying to make is, the first point is, this is real. It was close to succeeding. It wasn't that these coup plotters, I think, were bumping. This is just a very complex thing to do. Second point, how could they get so far? In secrecy, because as Ambassador Westmacott said, and you too, Aaron, nobody expected this. I mean, I... You know, I mean, I have, like all of us, but he's living on the ground, all kinds of contacts everywhere in business and in the government. I don't know anybody who had any inkling that anything like this could, could, could be possible. So how did they do it? Well, it looks like the way, uh, uh, amazingly, the way that the plotters were able to carry this as far as they did, both in terms of planning and operations, was WhatsApp. Uh, WhatsApp is now recently uh, fully encrypted end to end, and it turns out that that's how they did their planning. That's how the orders were, were carried out. We know that because a couple of uh, cell phones were found. Uh, the WhatsApp group of coup plotters was identified, and that's how um, the, the, the government then began going after the coup plotters. So in terms of uh, the modern communications technology, this is probably the first coup in history that was uh, WhatsApp <laughs> generated. Um, there's been a lot of misreporting about social media having been shut down in Turkey. It was not. It was fully operational. The government was using it in part to monitor what was going on. But, you know, for me, I mean, sitting in, 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 my, in my house safely and following social media, I, I felt like I was there on the ground, and it was, in fact, social media that allowed so many people to, to get out into the streets so quickly. So you had WhatsApp allowing for the coordination. You had social media getting people out in the streets. And again, it's this, this instance of, uh, of modern social media and other communications technologies that meant that the coup plotters didn't have to rely on walkie-talkies and written communications and things that could be intercepted. So we've entered a new, a new sort of digital era of coup plotting and also uh, of, of the people power response. So the third set of points is the unprecedented nature of both the violence and the human response, the civilian response. <clears throat> we all know there have been three full scale coups in, 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 in the Turkish Republic's history in 60, 71, and 80. And in all those cases, you know, there were no shots fired on civilians or even on other government sources. Um, it was essentially a case where, the, as we all know, the military stepped in to restore uh, 
a sense of order and, and, and civilization from chaos, uh, largely supported by the population without, without people dying. This time, oh my gosh, I mean, to have, you know, helicopter gunships attacking parliament, uh, armored troops shooting on civilians on, on the Bosporus bridges. This is, again, incomprehensible and guaranteed uh, if the people got to the streets, that the coup could not succeed if the people got to the streets, which they did. So the second unprecedented part of this is how mobilized the Turkish population was and then how unified the body politic is. So then a fourth point is we're at a moment of, of opportunity that is probably being squandered, but we had all four parliamentary parties, including the three opposition parties and the AKP, coming together Again, for an unprecedented joint statement uh, opposing the coup plotters. If you asked me last week, could there be any issue that could unify all these political parties, I would say, no, it just doesn't exist except maybe some sort of, a, I don't know, some alien invasion. Well, this is maybe the closest thing we got to that. So it, it, it's, it's a grand opportunity that I fear is going to end up being squandered. And before I get to that squandering point, which will take me about two minutes, um, I just want to make one more fifth set of ruminations uh, about who these plotters were. Yeah, we're just figuring out. We don't know, but as was said already by both colleagues, um, there are people extremely close to President Erdogan. I mean, his military aide de camp, who has permanent, constant access to the president, was involved. Uh, the former commander of the Air Force, I mean, he was the commander as of last year of the Air Force, was involved. Um, reports are that these plotters held the chief of the general staff at gunpoint, had the gun to his head, said, sign this order, uh, approving of the coup or we'll kill you. He refused to. They then strangled him, didn't kill him. He still had the marks on his neck, reportedly, when he was released. Um, these were serious people, very close to the top of military and political power. And for all of us who understand the, how militaries work, the military, especially in society, is usually the most cohesive element of society. It is, especially in a country like Turkey, where conscription is the norm, it's, it's the socializing force for young men and, and to, to, to develop a sense of what Turkish patriotism means. So for there to be such a split, such a split in the military from people that were so close to power means there was something dramatic happening, especially if the chief of the general staff doesn't go along with it. And that, that lends some credence to me that there was some other movement, some other ideology, some other organizational a set of factors that drove this forward. Um, this feeds right into the narrative of President Erdogan blaming the parallel state and, and the Fethullah organization. Um, many in the West find that hard to believe. It seems like a convenient set of accusations and are claiming, well, this is what President Erdogan always, who he always blames when anything goes wrong. Um, uh, but um, I think President Erdogan sincerely believes that this is the case. And so this is the last bit of points. Squandering. Um, we're starting to talk past each other, the, the, the rest of uh, the transatlantic community and Turkey. Um, <clears throat> clearly, it seems President Erdogan, with the vast number of people under arrest, is by our Western standards overreaching in response to a coup. And it's easy to say, indeed, that arresting all these judges, several thousand, as Ambassador Westmacott said, I didn't even know so many existed, seems like an overreach and perhaps an attempt to. Uh, exploit the situation to, to sideline political opponents. Okay, leave, leave, leave that at, at, as it may be. Um, there is a sense here, though, that, that, that the entire Turkish system, as we know it, was imperiled and, and narrowly escaped. 
And so now, rightly or wrongly, the statements that have been coming out, either by Commissioner Hahn uh, or, or Commissioner uh, uh, Chief Mogherini, uh, either saying Turkey is not going to be eligible for EU membership anymore, uh, or suggesting, as Commissioner Hahn did, that this was pre-planned because the lists were so expensive, must have been worked out before the coup, or even Secretary Kerry's statement, which if you read it verbatim, as in the Washington Post, shouldn't be objectionable. He just said, yeah, of course, within NATO, Turkey's actions with regard to democracy from here on will be scrutinized. These statements, however, are being interpreted or misinterpreted here as threats as threats that perhaps NATO would, would <laughs> kick Turkey out as a member. I mean, literally, this is what people are thinking. That's, that's a, an extreme misinterpretation. But feelings are wrong. I think that's how the government is responding. You've seen some, some over-the-top statements by a couple of government people here in Turkey claiming that if you're not with us, you're against us. If you don't give up Petula Gilan, you're responsible for the coup. Um, all, I guess emotions are so raw that each statement all of us make, but every, every political leader in particular makes, need to be made with an extra degree of caution because the ability to misinterpret on both sides right now is extreme. I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of people in the Turkish government, my last sentence here, um, that really can't believe that due process works as it does in the United States or United Kingdom across the European Union, that to extradite somebody, you actually have to have a court decision based on, on reliable evidence. I think people don't fully grasp that, and they, they mirror image here and think that, well, if the head of state wants someone extradited, all he has to do is order it. And I'll stop there. Thank you for your patience. Uh, thank you. Uh, operator, can you please inform our guests about how to ask the question? Thank you very much. At this time, we will be opening the line to questions. If you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone now. Questions will be taken in the order in which they are received. Please be sure to introduce yourself when asking a question. If at any time you would like to remove yourself from the queue, please press star 2. Uh, thank you. Uh, in the meantime, I've used the, operators, uh, the moderator's prerogative to ask the first question. And that is, after coming out in support of democracy over the weekend, what steps should the international community now be taking to ensure that those democratic principles are upheld in Turkey? And if there are not upheld, what are the consequences for Turkey? And I'd like to start with Sir Peter. Well, I think that the messaging which has been delivered by European and uh, American leaders uh, about the importance of the response being, being calibrated uh, and not being seen to be a purge, and I would add, you know, not, as I was saying just now, not adding to divisions and the polarization within society, I think those are very important messages. Um, the rest of us need to remember, however, that even if there are some parts of the way in which majoritarian rule has moved away from some of the liberal principles that the EU espouses, the fact remains that President Erdogan was elected by more than half of those who cast their votes for the presidential election. He remains uh, a very popular figure, and his ability to get large numbers of people onto the streets to counter the coup a bad witness to the fact that you know, that remains, if anything, you know, stronger. So you know, we need to keep all that in mind. Equally, I do think it is right to say, you know, hang on, this uh, Turkey, after all, is a founder member of the Council of Europe, of NATO, a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, and a would-be member of the European Union, something I profoundly welcome. I spent a number of years of my <laughs> diplomatic career trying to get the accession negotiations with Turkey begun. 
a decade ago, and I do regard Turkey as a, a very important European country. So I think it is right to see to see what's going on, and particularly the the next steps uh, in that broader context. How does one do it? You know, uh, the, the, the question from the moderator: If Turkey doesn't pay heed to these messaging, you know, what are we going to do about it? Well. I think these are discussions which are probably best held as far as possible in private. Uh, there are, have been some very important discussions in recent months when uh, other problems, and not related, of course, to a, a potential coup d'etat or failed coup d'etat, have taken place between President Obama and President Erdogan, Vice President Biden and Secretary Kerry and others. Many people uh, have discussed with uh, friends in Turkey about the direction of travel particularly on issues to do with rule of law and human rights and liberty of expression. And I think those things uh, remain important. I do think, as I was saying, I don't want to repeat myself, but I'll just touch on this point again, uh, and this was something that Matt Breiser was also underlining, the way in which all the political parties, and I would add you know, key military, former military figures uh, like General Ilka Bashbu, who's been on YouTube uh, condemning the, uh, the military coup, and many other senior figures, the courage shown by the uh, chief of the Turkish general staff who refused to sign a document endorsing the coup, all that, uh, those are forces for togetherness, if you like. They are things on which I would like to think one can build. Society and political parties have come together, including people who are both the supporters of the RKK, of the, of the Justice and Development Party, and those who are political opponents because they recognize for the importance of preserving Turkey's democratic institutions, uh, imperfect in some ways as they have become, uh, is hugely important, and that a, a military coup of this sort is simply the wrong way to proceed. I would add, in terms of context, that previous military coups not only have not seen different institutions of the state and the security forces firing at each other, um, but they have also taken place at a time when public opinion was overwhelmingly in favor of some sort of military invention, which was always short-lived, by the way. The military always handed the reins of power back to the military institute, to the civilian institutions pretty quickly, even if some of the constitutional arrangements left a bit to be desired. So this is, uh, we are in, in different territory. This time, the overwhelming majority of public opinion does not seem to have been in support of this, nor do the top brass, nor does the political opposition, uh, and so on. So this has brought everyone together in a way which I like to think could provide a platform for Turkey moving in what we might call the right direction rather than the wrong direction. But I agree with uh, others who have said we need to be a little bit careful about too much um, language that could be perceived to be threatening. I don't think we should be intimidated into saying, well, either you're totally with us or you're totally against us. That, that sort of you know, binary uh, commentary isn't helpful. We've got to remain true to our values and principles. But we do also need to take care and, take and think carefully about what's good for Turkey, uh, the situation where people now are, nerves are raw, the political climate is, is, is painful, uh, the divisions are out there. Let us engage with people in private, let us engage constructively. We're trying to help Turkey uh, over this, this bump in its modern history and try to help that it carries on moving in the right direction, which I think is towards at least the principles of European membership, whether or not actual membership happens, uh, and remaining the kind of partner that we desperately need Turkey to be, in other words, a bastion of secular democracy in an unstable and often not very democratic uh, Muslim part of the world, 
and a partner with the rest of us in dealing with the dreadful civil war in Syria, in dealing with Daesh, uh, next door but also alarmingly inside Turkey. Poor Turkey, we've, we've almost forgotten, has been the victim of nine different huge terrorist attacks in the last year or so. We've got to work together on counter-terrorism and we've got to work together on trying to stabilize the region. All that remains important, all that must be part of the dialogue, but all that I think is also contingent upon you know, Turkey uh, taking a deep breath and having a mature and democratic reaction to the terrible events of the last few days. Uh, thank you. Uh, Ambassador Braiser? Sure, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, I can only uh, underscore or agree with everything that Ambassador Westmacott said, and uh, just to sharpen the point a bit, I guess, it's... Uh, uh, the, Turkey needs to be reminded of the, the values to which it's committed, as, yes, as a NATO member, not to mention as an EU aspirant. But now is not the time to uh, create a new division between the rest of us and the transatlantic community in Turkey uh, by delivering a threatening lecture to Turkey. So that's clear. I mean, uh, that, that, that's what Ambassador Westmacott said. So how do you do it? To get to the other part of your question, Ashish, I think the most appropriate way to underscore what we expect of our NATO ally, but without doing it in a way that only uh, uh, makes the rawness even sharper and guarantees that, that we're going to go in different directions, would be use existing procedures, existing institutions. Call a North Atlantic Council meeting about this. Discuss this with Ambassador Westmacott said in private. Uh, if, if you want to elevate it, call a ministerial, an emergency ministerial meeting, and underscore that NATO is our, uh, Turkey is our NATO ally. We are with it. Turkey survived a near-death experience, and, uh, and now it's time to make sure it doesn't overshoot in its response. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're now going to open the floor to questions. Uh, the first question comes from Ben Hubbard with the New York Times. Ben? Uh, yeah, thanks a lot for organizing this call. It's very helpful. I'd like to ask specifically what you expect will be the impact of all of this on Turkey's role in the, in, in the campaign against the Islamic State, both domestically and internationally. I mean, obviously, Turkey plays a large role in the, in the international campaign going on in Iraq and Syria. And as has already been mentioned, Turkey, of, of course, has already had lots of domestic trouble with this. And so I'm just curious that when you have this much upheaval going on in the security forces, I mean, the very people that are supposed to protect the country from exactly these kinds of attacks, does that leave the country that much more vulnerable than, than it was before? Uh, I'll jump in. Uh, um, I, I, I think it, 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 will, it will have a significant impact on the way Turkey responds to the Islamic State. And I'll also just throw in the PKK there. Um, and I say that because as part of the, the, the arrests that, that have followed, you know, the second army commander uh, is now in handcuffs and has been detained, and he was lauded in the, in, the, in the Turkish press, I would say, two or three months ago because he was the spearhead and at least in charge of the operations in the southeast, which were uh, part of the counterinsurgency against the PKK. Uh, and we saw just last night the PKK begin to once again carry out attacks with, a, uh, uh, with an attack up in Bonn. How will it affect the Islamic State? It's the same exact thing, because the same army, the second army, is also in charge of, of the border. Uh, and this operational command would be, in theory, any, anything that would go into northern Syria, if an order was given, or as part of a multinational uh, peacekeeping force, or anything like that. Uh, I think the Indrilik, uh 
the closure uh, had a lot to do with just general concerns about which F-16s belong to who right after the right after the the, the, the coup attempt, and there's the general closing of the airspace to all military aircraft, and that has come on board more quickly. But if you're the United States, and if you're looking at again running successful coalition operations into northern Syria and two of the tanker aircraft that are assigned to you as part of that coalition or involved in a coup plot, you have to begin to reassess how stable it is your basis and begin to look at other options. Uh, and in addition to that, the commander of Injuluk Air Force Base, the Turkish commander, is also now in handcuffs and has been detained. So I think this will have a serious disruption um, uh, on the way in which the coalition carries out its operations. We may not see a slowdown in strikes, per se, uh, but nevertheless, it will be impacted. And then finally, I'll wrap up here, is that within the Turkish military itself, you know, the officers now who have not been arrested have to now be very concerned about the potential of being arrested. And so that creates a lot of hesitancy in, in freedom of thought when presented with, with alternatives by coalition uh, uh, partners, particularly the United States. And so there will be a hesitancy, in my opinion, to, 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 to make sort of, uh, quick decisions and everything will have to be run up the chain of the command, which ultimately ends at the president's office. We see a lot of slowing down uh, in decision-making processes. I think that makes sense. I just add one small point. I think that all of Turkey, uh, whether they are the people who work motivated to join this plot, or whether they're people who firmly believe this was the wrong thing to do, whether they're military, whether they're civilian, has increasingly understood in recent months that Turkey needs to come together and join the rest of us who are fighting against Daesh, or Islamic State, if you should call them that. There was a time for the first few years when there was something of a blind eye turned to the free flow of foreign fighters, some of them are from my own country, I'm sorry to say, and other European states, and military equipment across the border from Turkey into northern Syria because the Turkish government was taking the view that whatever it takes to get rid of Bashar al-Assad in Syria is okay by us. I simplify that that was the gist of it. But I think in recent times, as the political vacuum in Syria and in Iraq got filled by uh, awful people like the Islamic State, and Turkey has joined the coalition, and those terrorist groups have begun to wreak havoc in Turkey against people in Istanbul, in Ankara, different parts of the country. I think all of Turkey realizes that it needs to be part of the international effort to deal with the dire threat. I would not expect that to change. I agree that the chain of command within the military, you know, who's authorizing which flights out of which airport, whether it's in Diyarbakir or Eskishahir or in Injiluk, all that's going to be a bit more complicated for a while. But the overall commitment of Turkey to being part of a united international effort against Daesh, I would like to think, I hope, will remain unchanged. Thank you. Ambassador uh, Yeah, I, I would agree with all that. I think that uh, our operations are going to resume to normal and maintain that level uh, uh, as soon as all these other questions about these F-16s that were up there uh, are resolved. For Turkey now, also to be uh, more uh, of an active partner in fighting uh, the Islamic State. Um, number one, of course, you know, the PKK is, is a tall order, but um, I think it's just not possible, given the depth of fear uh, that this 
Bailey Koo has generated in decision makers here and what Aaron described as, you know, the, 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 the arrest of the commander of the Second Army, the Border uh, Patrol, uh, Border Control uh, General, um, that the Tur Turkey is going to be able to focus on the fight against Islamic State. Um, you know, just a, about an hour before this call, a, uh, at least three F-16s flew over my house, headed back toward the airport. Um, and there were reports that there were armored personnel carriers headed, headed that way. I don't know if that's true. Uh, this morning, um, the road where the highway was blocked in front of the hostile uh, military headquarters, which is near where I live, one of the major military bases in Istanbul, uh, uh, allegedly there were uh, operations underway to arrest, uh, uh, we think, to arrest more more soldiers, there are rumors about something else going on, maybe maybe armed uh, confrontation. So um, for, for the foreseeable future, I think this level of tension is going to remain high. And the focus of the leadership here, both political and military, is going to be internal. And But hopefully, I, I don't anticipate that's going to lead to uh, any imposed uh, slowdown on uh, coalition operations out of injury like that's the good news. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, our next question comes from Margaret Warner with CBS News Hour. Um, hello, thank you everybody for doing this. I wanted to follow up on Ben Hubbard's question. Um, Erdogan and the, and the Turks did shut down Insulik briefly. Um, they stopped the commercial flights to and from the U.S. Erdogan's made some negative comments about us harboring Gulen. I mean, to what degree are you fearful that this will uh, ignite or really exacerbate the anti-U.S rhetoric and feeling that's come from Erdogan and, and many members of the AKP. Aaron? Uh, um, <clears throat> I would say the, uh, amongst the people they were in the first wave who were on the streets in Turkey uh, that Friday night and moving into Saturday morning uh, have grown increasingly ang angry at what they perceive as American harboring a Fethullah Gulen. Uh, as, you know, Ambassador Bryza said, there's a lack of understanding about the extradition process amongst the sort of rank and file of the people on the street for obvious reasons, uh, uh, and that nobody can quite understand why the U.S. doesn't just hand them over. Uh, and I think that will continue to fester, uh, and that will continue to play a problem, particularly as Western governments rightfully so, will begin to pick up and say things about as the purges expand and about, again, challenging Turkey's commitments to the EU and, and, and all of its various international commitments, that will be perceived, again, as lecturing Turkey and add to that anger. In terms of the commitment to the fight against ISIS, look, I, I completely agree. Turkey has been a, a, real, a very active well, he's been an active member in the fight against ISIS probably for the past year. You know, there were some problems at the outset, considerable disagreements on the Turkish side about American strategy, but Turkey has been fighting ISIS. Uh, I, I expect them to continue to fight ISIS. I think the issue becomes one of capacity. They are running a counterinsurgency in the southeast where the bulk of their, uh, of their sort of intel and, and forces are deployed. Uh, they are also uh, being asked to shut the border, which, which, which uh, requires a number of forces being deployed as well. And then now on top of all of this, uh, I'd say about 30% of their generals and admirals have been put in handcuffs in the past 72 hours. Uh, and you're going to have a large-scale commitment by the other uh, uh, components of the security apparatus, the intelligence, the police forces, to root out suspected coup plotters. Uh, and members of the Fethullah Gulen movement. Uh, 
that's a lot to ask any governmental bureaucracy. Uh, and then keeping in mind that Turkey is a middle-income country uh, that's not very wealthy to begin with, and their, their national security apparatus, is, you know, national security apparatus, is far smaller than that of the United States. So they're already pulling on less resources than we would here at home. Ambassador West McCart, Ambassador Reiser, would you like to jump in? I'll add a, a, a brief comment. I think that you know, we need to bear in mind that if Turkey is a country which has long thought not only that there are conspiracies all around, but also that not much happens in the world unless Uncle Sam wills it or at least is content with it to happen. Uh, I used to spend a certain amount of my time explaining that things weren't quite like that and that uh, much as I am an admirer of the United States, it isn't in control of every aspect of everything that happens all the way around the globe. So I think it's, you know, it's nonsense that there are some people out there who somehow think that Citadel and City of Pennsylvania is an instrument of U.S. foreign policy and this is all part of an American club. You know, that is, to my mind, nonsense. Uh, I was always surprised during my time in the United States how few people, even in administration positions, knew anything about Fitzgerald Gulen. It was only the Turkey watchers who had an understanding of it. So I don't think he was an instrument of American policy. That said, my second point is just to say that clearly, as Secretary Kerry has suggested, if there is to be, and there never has been in the past, I don't believe, uh, a formal request that's properly substantiated for extradition or to look at uh, the issue of um, responsibility of uh, this gentleman for what's been going on in Turkey last week, then obviously the U.S. authorities have got to be willing to consider it in the same way that they would consider any other extradition request from a friendly ally, and I don't think that's in any doubt uh, that it would be treated in that way. Uh, and, and people will be watching carefully if such a request is made, but I have no idea how, how could any of us know whether there is going to be a formal extradition request. Extradition requests, as we all know, have to be properly documented. They have to be accompanied by appropriate degree of, of evidence so that they are considered by the, the authorities in the usual way. So I think you know, let's, let's see how this pans out. It seems to me that the responses of the U.S. administration so far have, have been exactly right in addressing this question. Thank you. Ambassador uh, Brazen? Yeah, I think that uh, tension is heating up quite significantly between the two countries, uh, even at a popular level. Um, Secretary Kerry's statement was, I don't know, willfully, but uh, definitely uh, misinterpreted here. Uh, perhaps totally unfairly, but it was misinterpreted as a warning that the United States may push for Turkey to leave NATO. So that has immediately, in the last couple of hours, uh, prompted people to organize uh, some protests. We don't know how big they'll be, but at the U.S. Council, the U.S. Embassy, uh, the, you know, street protests. So we go from <laughs> a, a glorious potential moment where people power stops some, a rogue set of military operators from toppling a democratically elected leader, warts and all, to... While street protests turning on the United States, I mean that that is really an unnecessary uh, case of shooting oneself in the foot, perhaps, because of a lack of understanding, which of course we can comprehend of all these intricate elements of the rule is such a legend land and what's the Turkish mentality and you know Turks feel that uh, we all of us uh, who were in the U.S. government or the British government. Uh, if NATO governments we wake up in the morning and the first thing we think about is how can we weaken Turkey, uh, the, 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 the sort of the, the national narrative is that um, we were the greatest, we were the Ottoman Empire, we were dismantled by the West, and, and that's happening again today because they don't want Turkey to be strong. I mean, from our perspective, that's ridiculous. But that, that mentality permeates 
just about everyone in Turkey, even my U.S. educated business partners. It's really amazing. So, you know, you can't blame U.S. officials for failing to comprehend and be sensitive to all those uh, phobias and, and, and national psychological complexes of a foreign country. Um, so that, again, just then argues for great care in what, whatever the official statements are, uh, but also, I would think it means we're going to be on a rocky road in U.S.-Turkish relations for a while because we're going to continue talking past each other, uh, making accusations, mirror imaging, uh, and it's going to be a rough ride, I think, for us. Uh, thank you. Uh, we have many questions in queue and would like to get to them all. Um, as we're running short of time, could you please, uh, future questioners, identify whom you would like to ask your question to? Uh, and with that, our next question comes from Farhad Azima. Uh, thank you, uh, sir. What does will do the relation of uh, Turkey and uh, Russia in the view of the warming up that they have recently? Uh, Mr. Dimitrov, would you like to ask this question? Uh, Ambassador Vestikos or anybody else who wishes. I didn't hear it clearly. What was the effect on the relations between Turkey and who? The Turkey and Russia in the U.S. And Russia. And Russia. Yes. You know, offhand, I don't think I've got much wisdom to impart on that. I think it is significant that just a few days before the coup happened, maybe maybe two weeks, uh, Turkey moved to improve its relations with both Russia and with Israel on the same day. I think because there was a general sense that the uh, change in foreign policy from having uh, no problems with any neighbors had become one of lots of problems with all the neighbors. And I think that uh, that was a move in the right direction. Since then, I'm hearing that Russian tourists who were not coming to Turkey at all this summer are already coming back in droves, which is good for the Turkish tourist industry. I don't know about the political relationship between President Putin and President Erdogan. It was good before the shooting down of the Russian aircraft when it entered Turkish airspace several months ago. Um, more generally, um, I think what, what would Russia like? Russia would love to see a weakening of the NATO alliance. I think one of the objectives we must keep in mind is that we must not allow that to happen. Uh, it might even like to see the weakening of Turkey as a serious member of the anti-Daesh coalition and of the group of countries coming together to try to find a political settlement in Syria. Because the Russian view on the whole, like that of Iran, has not been the same as that of Turkey and that of the, the other Western countries. So I think it will be somewhat opportunistic. They'll be looking to see what does this mean for the alliance, the alliances of which Turkey is a member. Uh, but otherwise, uh, I suspect Russia, like a, a lot of the rest of us, will be you know, waiting to see, but probably will not be conveying the same messages about the importance of not overreacting uh, against those who are deemed to be associated with the with the failed coup. Thank you. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you. Matt, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to add just very briefly that I think um, in reinforcement of Ambassador Westmacott has said, you, we're going to see uh, President Putin exploiting this as a way to restore relations with Turkey. I think he never wanted to have the breach that he had. He had to look tough at home after the after Turkey shot down uh, the, the big fighter back in, in November. Um, he called President Erdogan uh, in the midst of the coup 
Uh, no, I haven't seen any transcripts. It's just a foreign ministry of Russia announcement of a call, which speaks for itself, simply that they spoke. So a moment of, uh, of peril for President Erdogan. Uh, and the two presidents have some similar worldviews. Uh, I'll just leave it at this, that uh, not only do they both lead uh, lost empires, uh, but their greatest fear of both is by far an internal coup. Uh, that's why the relations between Egypt and Turkey are at such a, or have been at such a nadir, uh, and that's why President uh, Putin has reacted so uh, intensively at the so-called color revolution uh, over the last decade or so. So that's a factor that's going to bring them together, and as Ambassador Westmacott said, President Putin will exploit this to, to build whatever wedge he can in NATO solidarity. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next question comes from Kuri Rubin with the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, thanks so much uh, for doing this. Uh, for someone from the state that harbors the man from Pennsylvania, um, I wonder if um, any of you can say some more about what you think the plausibility is of Gulen and Gulenists having been behind this. Um, as you know, uh, Gulen's people were reputedly involved in the judiciary and police as ha uh, as journalists have written, but Gulen was once an ally of uh, Erdogan and uh, not supposedly not so involved with the military. So does this have plausibility to you? Um, and uh, given that, that Erdogan for a long time supported this cockamamie uh, Ergenicon and Sledgehammer process that threw thousands of people in jail, and that process was just undone. Um, do you think that is the kind of process that will now take place again because Erdogan had tolerated it? Will you just have massive dragnets? Aaron, would you like to take that? Sure, and I'll, I'll try and be as brief as possible. Um, it's Unclear the extent to which Fethullah Gulen was involved in this, either directly, but there was pretty widespread consensus amongst, I would say, the Turkish media, is that there were some Gulenist officers that were involved, at least in some way, shape, or form, in the execution of the plot. I will say the statement that was read out when they had brief control over TRT was very Kamalist in nature, very sort of hardline, Ataturk-type secularism that would differ considerably from the teachings of Fethullah Gulen. But I would say at this point, it's still very early in the process. We don't know who everybody is yet, so it's hard to make a definitive judgment about it. But I think your more broadly question about linking this to Argenicon and Balio, uh speaks to how the, 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 the first empowerment of Gulen within the bureaucracy by the AKP, then his subsequent disempowerment through the, uh, through the, uh, following the December 2013 leaking of tapes that implicated elements of the AKP and the now president Erdogan's family in corruption is tangentially involved, is, is, is linked to this because together, I think these, this, this empowerment and purge cycle significantly weakened Turkish institutions, and now I think with the coup plot, I think what it also shows is it also considerably weakened the Turkish military to where I would now say that you have a fractured uh, and, and divided military, which is something that we have not ever seen before uh, in Turkey. And the implications will, 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 are, are still yet to, to be seen about that. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, Ambassador Westmacott? 
very little to add. Uh, just one uh, anecdotal comment, perhaps, that I was struck that when President Erdogan finally landed at Istanbul Airport, when they got him back from Marmaris, and he gave that initial press conference where I thought he was uh, very calm and in control, he was not doing speaking against the background of the AKP flag or anything like that. He chose to have a large picture of Ataturk behind him, and he used very Ataturkist language, talking about soldiers as Mehmetchilat, which is real Ataturk talk, of, you know, rather like the, the British we used to talk about Johnny's in the First World War. This is First World War nationalist language. He was wrapping himself in something of a cloak of national unity. Uh, so I think that's partly reaching out to lots of people who might not be AKP supporters, but who nevertheless are bothered uh, by the way in which there is this sense of the Gulenists, of the hidden net movement, uh, somehow taking over parts of the country. We all know a lot of people in Turkey who may not be hugely enthusiastic AKP supporters, may never have voted for uh, President Erdogan and his party, but are nevertheless deeply worried about what they think has been the influence of the Gulenist movement uh, on the institutions of the state, of education, justice, judiciary, armed services, and so on. So I think you know, there is an uh, energy out there. How far was the old man in Pennsylvania behind this? Who knows? Uh, how far is there something about the influence of the Gulenist movement? I think most of us are suggesting a bit more than we would have expected, given the way in which they have made a good deal of effort to make trouble for Erdogan in recent years, and all of it has failed. So I think a, there are a number of question marks out there uh, about the true extent of, um, of the Gulenist operation. But it's, it, it may be encouraging that so many different uh, elements of Turkish society, political parties and others, are coming together and saying, you know, this, is, this is not the future direction of travel that we want for our country. Thank you. Ambassador Weiser, would you like to add anything? Maybe very briefly to rehash something I was alluding to before. Um, there are plenty of reasons that members of the Turkish military would be angry with the Turkish government based on what Aaron said, operations uh, Ergenikon and Sledgehammer, and that's the question uh, noted as well. Um, but those who suffered the most, the one, who's, one of them who suffered the most, the former chief of the general staff, as was mentioned earlier, Ilkut Abashbu, who was sentenced to life in prison under that ridiculous set of investigations and prosecutions, came out against the coup. So chances are, just using logic and deduction, um, the people who launched this coup were not doing it because they were upset about their former superiors who are now saying, you know what, we're against this coup anyway. They were, you know, not because they're upset about how those other guys were treated. Indeed, the people who, who operated this coup were those who survived Operation Sledgehammer investigations. They survived Ergenikon. Room was made for them to make it up to the top of the ranks, including commander of the Turkish Air Force, precisely because their senior colleagues That is highly suspicious to me, and it makes me think they were reacting on the basis of some sort of uh, ideological motivation that goes beyond a gripe for how their superiors uh, were previously treated. And, and that, so that's why I think uh, it's plausible uh, that, that the, the Gilemist organization was involved, but I, I see no evidence to, to uh, make that clear, that accusation clear, and we'll have precisely what Secretary Kerry has asked for from the Turkish government side. Thank you. Thank you. We're nearing the end of our call and have time for just one last question, and that comes from Howard LaFranchi with the Christian Science Monitor. Howard? Uh, yes, thank you so much, and, and really this 
continuing on the, the discussion, it was pretty much uh, answered just this last question on involvement of the Guinness movement. But um, um, again, Secretary Kerry said, um, you know, it can't be accusations. We need evidence. And um, so, with with Kerry saying that, I mean, you know, do we expect to see a formal ex extradition request? And um, you know, what kind of, I mean. What would we need to see for for there to be the evidence that Kerry is talking about? How, how to whom would you like to ask that question? Um, I guess maybe uh, Aaron. Okay. Um, I, I'm actually going to ask that my, my my other two colleagues talk about the evidence based um, um, things. What it, what it would take um, uh, in terms of the, the, the bureaucratic processes involved. Uh, I would say that the ball is in the Turkish government's court, and it has been for a very long time. If they want to formally request this extradition, they can. You know, they have to, again, put together all the bureaucratic things necessary to do it. I wouldn't overestimate his political value here in the United States in threatening to extradite him. You know, the boogeyman that lives in Pennsylvania that's threatening to undermine Turkey has a very, very salient political benefit to the ruling Justice and Development Party, and it is always in mind that he is more politically beneficial in the United States under the threat of extradition, but never actually following through on it, uh, because it benefits the, the AKP politically, and if you were to subject the case built against him to international scrutiny on international norms, it would quickly fall apart because a lot of these things wouldn't hold up in what we would think of as a proper court of law. Uh, thanks, Aaron. I, and with that, I'm afraid we've reached the end of our time. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining this call, and thanks to Sir Peter and Master Breiser and Aaron for your time. As a reminder, this call was on the record. We do have a few people who we weren't able to reach, but we will be in touch with you uh, shortly. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. At this time, this conference is now concluded. You may disconnect your phone lines and have a great rest of the week. Thank you.